Some of us grew up with red letter Bibles, you know, the Bible that had the words in red that were attributed to Jesus. Today's passage would all be in red letters. This is Jesus speaking and speaking to God in the form of a prayer from John 17, verse 20 through 26. Will you please rise if you are able for the reading of the gospel? I ask, not on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that these also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, But I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. May God bless this reading to our understanding. You may be seated. I hope you will stay for a light brunch in the parlor after today's service, but if you're still a little hungry when you're leaving, you might stop at a restaurant on your way home. You might get a table and visit with some family, with some friends. Maybe you're going to go to First Watch or to Nisi's or to Grand Street. They all serve a good Sunday meal. And maybe while you're seated there at the table looking over the menu, you will begin overhearing the conversation at the next table. Sometimes, even if you're seated in a booth, you can hear what they're saying at the table behind you. If my mother goes to lunch with you, you might say to her, what are you having? And she'll say, shh, I'm listening. (laughs) And what if you overhear them talking and you hear them mention your name? Sometimes overhearing the conversation at the next table is more interesting than the conversation taking place at your table. When we read today's gospel text from John, we are overhearing the words of Jesus, and he is talking about us. This passage of scripture comes from what's called Jesus's farewell address to his disciples. But at the end of the address, he stops talking to the disciples and starts talking to God about the disciples. And Jesus prays not just for his first followers, but for all of those who will come after those followers because of their witness. Jesus prays then not just for Carla and for Rodney and for Bev and for Steve, but also for Country Club Christian Church and Swope Parkway United Christian Church What is it, do you think, is so important to Jesus in his final days that he would go to God in prayer and ask God to make it so? 
What would Jesus plead for, yearn for, long for in his final days? What would he take from his heart to the very heart of God? Jesus prays, may they all be one. This prayer is so central to who Jesus is and so critical to who we are as Christian people that it is the key verse inscribed in the central window in our chapel, the Combs Chapel just across the street, where there is a full length, much like this, image of Jesus and underneath at the bottom of all the words in the Bible selected, the words are selected that they may be one. Jesus doesn't lecture them about unity. Jesus doesn't command them to behave in a unified fashion. Jesus prays that God will grant them the gift of unity. May they all be one. He prays that the unity that God and Jesus share as father and son will become the unity that they practice as brothers and sisters in Christ. Reuben Job served as a bishop in the Methodist church. And you may have read some of what he's written because he, for many years, edited this Christian magazine that many of us read called The Upper Room. Uh, Bishop Job tells the story of how Methodists become Methodists as ministers every year. Since the time of John Wesley in the 18th century, every minister was asked to answer these 17 questions in order to be admitted into full membership as a Methodist minister. Now, I'm not gonna go through all 17, but here are the first two. The first question is, have you faith in Christ? And of course, all the ministers would, yes, I do. And the second question is, are you going on to perfection? And one time, during the turbulent 1960s, a bishop, a Methodist bishop named Bishop Kennedy lined up a group of Methodist ministers in front of the whole Methodist conference that had assembled and asked, are you going on to perfection? And one minister said, no. And the bishop was quick. The bishop said, then where are you going? Where are you going? If you're not going to perfection, where are you going? My brothers and sisters in faith, Jesus prays for our unity. Is unity where we are going? And if not, where are we going? We live in a fragmented and broken world. The human race has divided itself into various factions and groups. We are Russians and Ukrainians. We are Hutus and Tutsis. We are Israelis and Palestinians. We have splintered ourselves into groups that we call black and white, evangelical and progressive, Republican and Democrat. We call ourselves the rich and the poor, the young and the old, the Americans and the immigrants, those who live east of Troost and those who live west of state line. And the list goes on and on and on. And Jesus prays for all of those groups and more saying that they may all be one. Will the prayer of Jesus be answered? 
The problem is not unique to our time. The Gospel of John records this prayer that Jesus prayed for their unity at the crescendo of Jesus' message because already in the first century of Christianity, divisiveness and discord, pain and brokenness is haunting the church. Already in the first 100 years, they have lost their cohesion. And in the third century of Christianity, the great philosopher and teacher of the faith, Origen of Alexandria, suggested a radical notion about unity. He predicted that the church might actually practice unity and eventually model for all of humankind how to come together in unity. Is that where we are headed? Are we united? Or will we choose to remain entrenched in our brokenness and in our pain to keep our feet planted in cement, stuck because of our fear and distrust? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. Do non-Christians drive past Ward Parkway, and do they see a people who have leaned into Jesus' prayer on our behalf that they may all be one? Is that what we look like? When I was a teenager in the youth group in my home church in Texas, I loved the youth group. We had a fabulous youth group, but we were a small group for such a big church, and there was a reason that we were a small group, because the leaders of our group had formed a clique. And when new kids came, they did not feel welcome. Oh, oh no, we were polite. But it was clear that they were not welcome in our clique, that they were not going to become us. And so one day, the two youth ministers at my church invited me to go to Pizza Hut with them. And we sat in a booth and we ordered iced tea and pizza. And they laid out for me the plan that they had devised to grow our youth group. They decided that every Sunday night we would have two youth groups. One would be the clique. And one of the youth ministers would meet with the clique. And the other youth group would be all the kids, the new kids who wanted to be in the youth group, but who always felt left out. And the other youth minister would meet with that group. And they looked me straight in the eye in that booth at the Pizza Hut, and they said, Carla, which group will you be in? I squirmed. I fidgeted. I cried, and I tried to overhear what they were saying in the other booth. <laughs> I did not want to leave my friends, my best friends in the clique. It was a horrible dilemma, but I also knew somewhere deep inside of me that God welcomes all people and that the love of God was for the very people that we had excluded. And I knew I had to make a choice, and I knew that it was not really a choice. Because where was I headed after all? To unity 
or someplace else. I met with the youth group comprised of those who had been excluded. One of those is my very dearest friend to this day. We met together in the separate groups for, I don't know, six, eight weeks. And then we melded the two groups and we became a stronger, more vibrant, larger youth group that was not ruled by any clique. Now, I've preached this text from John on unity a number of times before, but this time when I, when I read it, when I overheard the prayer of Jesus, I, I imagined it in a different way. I imagined hearing Jesus pray this prayer in the company of Swope Parkway United Christian Church and in the company of Country Club Christian Church, and I heard something I had never heard before in the text. I heard this time the secret ingredient that seems to be missing in our quest for unity. I don't know why I hadn't heard it before. I heard a word in this text that expresses the why of our unity, the purpose of our unity, the method for our unity. I don't know why I had missed it. It is there five times in six verses. Maybe you got it the first time. Maybe you heard it. It's the word love. The purpose of uniting with one another is simply so that we can witness to the love of God. Unity becomes possible only because God loves us. The source of this unity will never be our agreement and our alignment, but will always be the person of Jesus Christ. This unity is our gift. Verse 23 says, in the words of Jesus, they may become one because, God, you have loved them as you have loved me. But my friends, how can we love one another if we do not know one another? How can we love people if we do not know their names and their stories and their burdens and their joys? What kind of love could that be? Jesus is describing a reciprocal love, a give-and-take love. Jesus lives a cross-shaped love. And when Christians receive the indwelling of love, we discover... We discover a power that can remake the world. What happened to those ameners from last Sunday? <laughs> we discover a power great enough to remake the world. Jesus prays for the single ingredient that can make it so, for love. A couple of months ago, we hosted the funeral of a Kansas City legend, Lynn Dawson. It was my job to call his closest, dearest, lifelong friends. I called them to invite them to be the speakers at the service, to be the pallbearers at the service, to stand here at this pulpit and to share about their beloved 
lifelong friend. And I was humbled to make those phone calls to people like Bobby Bell. And I kept thinking to myself, this man is 87 years old. He is all about football. And half of his dearest lifelong friends are black and half of them are white. Why is it, I thought, that football can be out ahead of the church when it comes to unity? Where are we going? Where are we going? Can we claim the gift of unity? I have a favorite story about the power of God's love to unite us across our differences. My friends at Country Club Christian Church may have heard this story before, but for some of us, we will hear it the first time. It's a true story. It's a story that comes from the book, Undergoing God. And it's a story about the war in Bosnia in the 1990s. I always remember this international conflict in Bosnia because my nephew, uh, um, who is a, a general now in the army, but who was um, a soldier in the army back then in the 90s, served in Bosnia. And as he was there, I kept reading about the war in Bosnia and the horrific atrocities there and praying for peace there. And there was a family they were Christian, they were of Serbian descent, and their last name was Sorak. Rosa Sorak was the mom, she had a husband, she had two sons grown and uh, a daughter-in-law, and the Sorak family happened to be living in a Muslim enclave. The Sorak family had been largely indifferent to the political hatred that had emerged between the Christians and the Muslims, but once the bombs of the war began to fall, the Sorak family became a persecuted minority. Both of the Sorak sons were killed by Muslim forces. And one of those sons, when he died, left behind a wife who was expecting, and he never got to meet his newborn child. When the baby was born, it was at the height of the conflict, and many of the elderly and the very young were passing away of starvation and malnutrition. For the first five days of the infant's life, she was held by members of the Sorak family, and she grew weaker and weaker because all they had to give her to drink was weak tea. A Muslim farmer who was illiterate knew that the Sorak family had this baby on the brink, and he got up in the middle of the night and he walked to the edge of town where he had a cow, and he milked the cow, and he carried back a half liter of milk, and he set it on the family's front porch. He continued to do this day after day after day, and the baby began to thrive, but every time he walked that way, he had to go by night. He knew he could be hit by sniper fire. He knew that his Muslim brothers and sisters would persecute him and ridicule him if they found out that he was reaching out to help a Christian family, a Serbian family. For 442 nights, he made that journey, and the baby grew, and the baby thrived until the Sorak family realized 
that things were so bad they must flee across the border to safety. After the conflict ended, a war correspondent was traveling. He came through this small village. He found the farmer, and he said, I just wanted to bring you a message from the Sorak family. I've seen them. They are alive. They are well. And the farmer's eyes lit up, and he said, and the baby, tell me, tell me about the baby. Will we take the risk to love one another that unity might be ours?